0: It's 1976, and the Democratic nominee for the presidency, Jimmy Carter, is visiting Los Angeles to attend a lucrative fundraising event at the private home of the largest individual donor to the party's candidates and causes, Lou Wasserman of Universal Pictures. As Hollywood investigative reporter David Robb recalls, it is a high-pressure, highly publicized moment.
1: Jimmy Carter landed in LAX and the LAPD was very concerned about his safety and security because eight years earlier in 1968 here in LA, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. So the LAPD was gonna make sure nothing like that happened again. He landed, they closed off the 405 freeway. He gets there with this police entourage and there to greet him at Washerman's house is Sid Korshak. So they were delivering him to one of the most dangerous men in America, really, unbeknownst to Jimmy Carter.
2: He had no idea he was going to be there.
0: Yes, you heard that right. A man seeking the most powerful office on Earth is visiting the home of the most powerful man in Hollywood, and he's met there by the most powerful lawyer in the state a man who has recently been identified by the New York Times as organized crime's chief representative in California and Las Vegas. But how can this be? A decade earlier, Lou Wasserman and his company were besieged by the Justice Department for antitrust violations and possible mob ties. How did Wasserman not only escape, but indeed thrive? The answer as people in Hollywood knew all too well, was that Lou Wasserman could and
1: did control the world like that. Like master criminals, Lou's biggest thrill was getting over on the system. And in his case, the opponent would be the government itself. Wasserman really was the most Machiavellian figure in terms of supporting candidates. The rumor was that if he put his money down on a particular candidate, that candidate would win. Lou Wasserman loved Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan loved Lou Wasserman.
3: Lou recognized that you can control the president, which he did, Then anything was going to go his way.
0: This is Glitter and Might, the Lou Wasserman Story. So, back to 1962, when MCA is not only the biggest talent agency in Hollywood, but also its largest creator of television programming and a full-fledged movie studio, having recently acquired Universal Pictures. Robert Kennedy's Justice Department had seen enough of the company's unbridled growth and took MCA to court for antitrust violations. The very future of the company Lou Wasserman had built was at stake.
4: Wasserman and the executives around him thought that the government was going to be a burr in their saddle. It was going to be a pain. They might have to sell a few things. But I think they thought they could beat it, and they didn't think that the government would go that hard at them.
0: This is Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief at Variety.
4: There were a lot of changes in American business, and you were seeing, like, railroad mergers. Auto companies were merging. So there was a certain amount of, like, hey, that's okay, but... Those of us that want to make movies and TV shows and a few records on the side, you're going to question that. I think they were shocked that the government thought that this was a problem. On the Bobby Kennedy side, you could say he was pretty prescient in recognizing that media has outsized influence.
0: Facing this legal onslaught, MCA was forced to choose whether it wished to be either a talent agency or a studio. To Hollywood's amazement, Wasserman and the MCA board chose to dissolve the talent agency, the very business that had made MCA so fearsome and huge. Here is Wasserman biographer Dennis McDougall.
1: So they literally overnight sent out letters to all their clients saying, you're going to have to find somebody else to represent you as an agent because we're now producing television programming and motion pictures and we're no longer in the talent agency business. The
0: day Wasserman's letter hit Hollywood's desks became known around town as Black Tuesday.
1: It had the effect of a Category 5 hurricane in Hollywood because people who had always depended on their agents didn't have one, and they had to hustle and find a new one overnight. Exiting the agency
0: business was hardly fatal for MCA there was far more money to be made in producing movies and TV shows than in representing the people who made them. Still, the experience left Wasserman, a man accustomed to having his way, feeling vulnerable.
3: Lou sort of wakes up in that cold sweat that morning in that wonderful home in Beverly Hills and says, I will never be controlled again or have any law that will control how I operate my business. This
0: is Barry Average, director of the documentary, The Last Mogul, The Life and Times of Lou Wasserman.
3: No one's gonna ever tell him how to do anything again. And that's really this moment where he just becomes even more fierce than he'd ever been.
0: Wasserman started to take steps to liberate MCA from the oversight of the federal government. While the company had long avoided the sort of spotlight that political activity invited, He saw that he needed to involve himself and the company in politics to ensure his empire's stability.
3: And that's where, again, he makes those inroads into Washington and becomes the kingmaker.
0: Within a year of MCA's abandoning the agency business, Wasserman agreed to head the California chapter of the President's Club, a group of campaign donors whose dollars got them FaceTime with the president. He made his political debut in June 1963 when he hosted a dinner for John F Kennedy at the Beverly Hilton Hotel that cost attendees $1000 a plate, nearly $10,000 today. Wasserman recalled conceiving of that impressive sum in a rare interview for the LBJ Library.
5: $100 was not enough, $10,000 was too much, so it was almost an automatic thing, you know how much you're going to charge for a a fundraiser, as it were, if you have a dinner party, well, it's either $100 or $10. You very seldom pick out $65, yeah. you know.
0: The dinner raised nearly $250,000, some $2.5 in modern terms, in a single night.
2: The President's Club was a typically clever Lou Wasserman idea that encouraged very big contributors to give money to Democratic candidates,
0: This is author Frank Rose, describing how Wasserman invented the concept of the 11th chair at events attended by the president.
2: Of course, a typical table at a dinner has 10 seats, but with the 11th seat, the president or the candidate could come visit every table and have one course with one table, and the next course with another table, and so forth, until everybody had gotten a little bit of a piece of him.
0: There are some fascinating wrinkles to this history. For one, Wasserman was not initially a John Kennedy man. He had favored Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination. And in fact, it was the Kennedy administration in the person of the president's brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, that had so vigorously sought to break up MCA. But Wasserman could live with these contradictions. The prize he was after transcended personal feelings.
2: I think when it came to politics, Lou was very practical. He did what he felt was best for MCA and not for anything else.
0: Whatever Wasserman may have felt about the situation, things would soon and dramatically change. From Dallas, Texas, the flash,
6: apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital. Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office and become uh, the 36th president of the United States.
0: Wasserman had known Lyndon Johnson since his days in the Senate, and he remained on friendly terms with him ever since. Now, with a presidential election less than a year away, Wasserman dove headfirst into fundraising raising more money for Johnson in 1964 than California had ever contributed to a Democrat. It wasn't always easy, as Wasserman later recalled.
5: We had an interesting thing at that first dinner. It was prior to the availability of several new hotels in Los Angeles, and we more or less were committed to the old Ambassador Hotel that has a famous Coconut Grove, and uh, that room was not available. And the only other room had been booked for a Jewish bar mitzvah. So I called the father, told him I needed the room. And I would pay him to move the bar mitzvah to an adjoining room, which was smaller. And he said, why do you need the room? And I told him for party for president. And he said, oh, if you can let my son meet the president, I'll give you the room. I said, no problem. He said, can I meet him? I said, no problem. And he finally called back and said, well, if you let the rabbi meet him, it's a deal. <laughs> and we made the deal.
0: To President Johnson, Wasserman was not just a financial backer, but an ally and a confidant. He trusted him enough, in fact, to offer him the job of Secretary of Commerce, a position which Wasserman declined because he couldn't leave MCA Universal in such uncertain times.
1: Over time, they clearly were good friends. They trusted each other, which was very important. Both of them were in professions, Politics and entertainment, where trust was rare.
0: This is Joe Califano, who worked in the White House as Lyndon Johnson's chief aide on domestic affairs.
1: There were very few people that Lyndon Johnson trusted. I used to say about him, the only person he trusted was Lady Bird, his wife, and then not every day of the week. But he did trust Lou, and they got along very well.
0: Lou and his wife, Edie, made several visits to the LBJ ranch for socializing.
1: I think very few people went to the ranch and stayed there. That was really something for a handful of people.
0: It says something about the genuine connection between the two men that Wasserman would take a break from his deeply ingrained daily work habits and his rigid businessman's wardrobe to spend time hanging out on a ranch in the Texas Hill Country.
6: Usually they'd have cocktails in the family room, and then they would move into the dining room. This is Tom
0: Johnson, who served as an aide to President Johnson.
6: The table would probably have no more than 12 people at it. Very informal. The president dominated every table, but he certainly deferred to Lou. Often there would be a movie before the night was over out in the ranch hangar. LBJ loved to watch the sunset, so very often he would have them in the car and just ride around, look at the cattle, look at the deer, look at everything.
0: Fish out of water, though he may have been, Wasserman seemed to enjoy his time on the ranch. Here he describes one memorable visit with Henry Ford.
5: We were down one weekend, Henry Ford and his wife were down. And it was just at the time they'd come out with a new motor And the president said, let's go for a ride. At which point, Henry Ford and Lou Wasserman wound up in the jump seat in the back and the president was in the front. And he took off across the country. And as you know, the president drove at a good rate of speed and usually uh, managed to drive where there were no roads. And after about 15 minutes of this, Henry Ford looked around at me and said, you know, Lou, I don't think this car is built for this terrain. <laughs> It was just a rapport
6: that was established—a trusted rapport. LBJ could trust Lou with secrets. He would consider Lou Wasman a close friend.
5: We were sitting around after dinner upstairs one night, and talking about Hollywood and about movie stars and about personalities. Got right to be late got to one or two in the morning, you know. It just had nothing to do with politics. And we were just shooting the breeze as it were about. Movie making or television programs are about the people in them and what they did. You know, intimacy in a relationship
6: like that, you would normally expect that to be publicized a great deal. LBJ did not worry about leaks coming out of them. And you think about it, Lou, I mean, he's walking around with a significant knowledge of the president's
0: thoughts. If it seems hard to picture a couple of Jewish kids from Cleveland hanging out with a president in Texas, consider that Lou and Edie Wasserman were thought by many to be Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood. Their Beverly Hills home, with its impressionist paintings, rare koi pond, and postcard views, was designed for entertaining. And an invitation to one of their dinner parties or Sunday barbecues was prized. One of the chief reasons for this was that Edie herself had risen as high in Hollywood society as her husband had in the movie business.
3: Edie was extraordinarily tough. She was a great pillow whisperer with Lou. She set the social scene in terms of their parties and who Lou should have encounters with, who he should do business with, who he should trust. She was no shrinking violet sitting at home having garden parties. If she was having a garden party, there was an agenda. Very, very powerful woman. Edie
1: was somewhat notorious because she was a woman about town. She learned from her female friends that didn't really make all that much difference who you hopped into bed with. There wasn't a leading man that she didn't have the hots for. And it almost became sport to her as to who she could bed. And Lou tolerated it. A lot of people might've gotten divorced, but Lou and Edie established A lifelong
0: partnership. A 1965 article in Time magazine revealed, quote, Mrs. Wasserman sleeps in the bedroom. Wasserman sleeps on a couch in the study, where he gets up at five each morning and starts making phone calls to breakfasting subordinates in New York.
1: I wouldn't say that Lou was sexless or that he didn't suffer the same bouts of lust as his wife. But I think they dissipated over time because his drive, sexual or otherwise, was always reserved for the office. The power element was far more important to him in a business setting than the bedroom.
0: As Wasserman's influence rose in Washington, the whole film industry came to recognize him as its strongest and importantly, best connected leader.
4: He really did become like the elder statesman of the business. He had that standing and that authority. Like anytime there's a problem today, anytime there's a real industry issue, either between two companies or like right now, all of the major unions are getting ready for new contract talks. And everybody's talking about who's going to be the Lou Wasserman, who's going to be the figure that can stand up, bring the two sides together, and come to a reasonable compromise.
0: Wasserman, of course, couldn't be in two places at once. He needed a full-time liaison in Washington, someone working exclusively in the movie industry's best interests. As it happened, a relatively obscure D.C.-based lobbying group the Motion Picture Association of America, was looking for a new president. Wasserman recognized that the MPAA could become Hollywood's pulpit in Washington, and he lobbied for Jack Valenti,
8: a press aide to LBJ, to get the job. Jack Valenti was a PR man for the Kennedy-Johnson administration, who was actually in Dallas the day that the president was shot. You can actually see him in the background of that famous photo of LBJ with his hand on the Bible. And he became one of the president's closest confidants in the White House. This is producer Brandon Millen. When Lou came to the White House to offer him the top job at NPAA, Jack first turned it down and he said that he couldn't leave the president. Well, Lou responded apparently that when the president leaves the White House, you won't be here after that. So what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Jack's first question to Lou after accepting the position was, well, are you sure I shouldn't be meeting with the members of the board prior to showing up? Do I need an interview with anyone? And Lou's response was, no, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So Jack shows up to his first meeting in New York and it's Jack Warner on the board. It's Daryl Zanuck. It's Spiros Skouros. I mean, these were leaders of the industry. These were the moguls. And they were deferring to Lou Wasserman to make the decisions for who should be leading the industry as its spokesperson in the nation's capital.
0: Valenti became president of the MPAA in 1966 and not a moment too soon. A rising culture war was threatening Hollywood's ability to regulate itself. As movies began to dabble in explicit profanity, nudity, and violence, communities around the country were threatening to establish censorship boards to determine what could be shown in their local theaters.
4: There were movies that were being released that were edgy. They were pushing the envelope. There was a real threat of stronger regulations, stronger restrictions. But Lou is like, no, we got to get in front of this.
6: The head of the Motion Picture Association of America, Jack Valenti, said today in New York that the film industry plans to set up a voluntary rating system designed to keep youngsters from seeing undesirable films. However, Valenti said that the industry still vigorously opposes government censorship or classification by law.
0: Valenti oversaw the creation of a letters-based rating system still in use today that allowed parents to decide if the content of a film was appropriate for their children and, more importantly, protected the movie studios from the censorship of politicians.
4: Jack became beloved. He walked on water in Hollywood because he was seen as the thin line between Hollywood and excessive regulation, excessive criticism.
3: You think about that power to control not only Hollywood, but Washington, and sculpt, cultivate, and nurture everything to go your way. That's what Lou had.
0: As it happened, Wasserman's personal political beliefs were progressive and he was deeply loyal to the Democratic Party, but he knew that he couldn't take sides in politics when it came to protecting his business.
2: Lou was a supporter of the Democratic Party, but other top executives at MCA were, you know, major Republican donors. And this is not by accident. They all realized, and certainly Lou more than anyone, that in order to have influence in Washington, they really had to have support in both major parties.
0: Here is Rick
7: Perlstein,
0: author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan.
7: They always say that a preacher never wants to talk about politics because he always risks angering half the congregation. But it's you know the same way in a corporate America. You certainly want to play both sides, and MCA set that up.
0: If the Democratic wing of MCA was tied to Lyndon Johnson, the company's Republicans also had a favorite son, one whom they found in an unlikely place. Ever since being granted the job of hosting General Electric Theater, Ronald Reagan had been on tour for GE, giving hundreds of speeches at its factories across the country.
7: It taught him how to give a speech for which he became America's greatest, quite frankly. He always had his ears attuned to the emotional tenor of the audience. He was always able to kind of refine his presentation from one stop to another. He has his pattern down pat. It's called the speech, and he's delivering it over and over again to Republican meetings, to Rotary Club meetings, to conservative meetings, to anti-communist meetings. He's basically a politician before he ever thinks to give a speech for a candidate as a conservative.
0: Reagan debuted The Speech before a national audience at the 1964 Republican Convention, where it was widely believed that he made a better impression than the party's presidential nominee, Barry Goldwater. It turned out to be one of the pivotal political speeches of the 20th century.
1: You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down.
0: Reagan, of course, had never held public office, but he was soon courted by a group of wealthy conservative donors, including MCA board members, who encouraged him to run for governor of California in 1966.
7: Hollywood turned people into stars. They trained them, off camera, on camera. Ronald Reagan kind of came to them fully formed with a persona, with a character, with a type. You know, the heroic all-American guy.
0: Wasserman did not initially take Reagan seriously as a political candidate. In fact, he vigorously and generously supported his opponent.
7: It shouldn't be a surprise that Lou Wasserman would give a six-figure donation to Pat Brown in 1966, because, quite frankly, the idea of Ronald Reagan becoming governor was considered a joke.
0: Mr. Reagan, it's being said and written... Your campaign is an attempt
7: to turn an actor into a believable candidate for governor. You know, I mean after he won his nomination, Esquire magazine said the Republican Party is not that desperate. They haven't nominated Liberace, right? <laughs> so the idea, you know, was like somehow he squeaked through, but you know, now the grown-ups are in charge, and this guy, Ronald Reagan, will, you know, go back to making cowboy movies.
0: That may have been the prediction, but that wasn't what happened. In November 1966, Reagan mopped the floor with Pat Brown, becoming governor of California. He was reelected in 1970 and left office four years after that with his eyes on an even bigger prize, the White House. In 1980, running again against Lew Wasserman's chosen candidate, Jimmy Carter, Reagan once more won handily, becoming the 40th president of the United States. Wasserman had never lost touch with Reagan, who'd been his very first Hollywood client back in 1939 and had remained a genuine friend in all that time. So it was no surprise that he and Edie were invited to Washington to witness Reagan's swearing in. At the most A-list of all the inaugural balls, the newly elected president and his wife Nancy greeted guests in a reception line. When Wasserman approached Reagan, the actor-turned-president smiled, reached out his hand, and quipped, if you were a better agent, I wouldn't need this job. As the 80s dawned, with MCA growing bigger than any other studio in Hollywood and an old friend who understood what the movie business needed in the White House, Lou Wasserman had utterly reversed the fortunes which had faced him two decades prior surely nothing but glory and ease would follow. And for a time, that was indeed the case. But little did Wasserman know that when he returned from Reagan's inauguration, the seeds of his undoing had already taken root.